Hi, it's Phil Harvey. Welcome to Harvey from the Undisclosed Location, a series of conversations about creativity, inspiration, and community. Today, my guest is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. I joined Eric at his offices in Borough Hall in downtown Brooklyn. We had a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. We're here with Borough President Eric Adams, Brooklyn Borough President. Eric, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us and share a bit about your journey. You know, uh, I first became aware of you in the 90s mm. with uh, 100 blacks who... Uh, Law enforcement, who cares? Right, yes, right. yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember that moment uh, with much needed uh, voice in the city. Right, right. Uh, those were the times when I was a member of the New York City Police Department and I believe I was a sergeant at the time, and there was really uh, not a, a a high appetite for talking about fairness in policing. You know, we re, we rewrite the history, but in reality, uh, there were there were a lot of communities who uh, knew what was taking place with young black and brown boys, but they were sort of like Jack Nicholson's theme, you really don't want to know the truth. <laughs> and we ignored it. A lot of good people ignored bad things. So you're a lifelong New Yorker. I'm gonna throw out some identifiers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you've been active in civic life for 30 years, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As a police officer, organizer, state senator, and now is borough president of Brooklyn, the fourth largest city in the United States. Correction, third, we just third? overcame Chicago. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yes. Uh, so I always like to ask people that we talk with about their journey and how they got started was there something or someone who inspired you to get on this path of service that you've been on? That's a great question. I believe that sometimes we choose life and then life chooses us. If you were to look back over, really over 35 years, as I heard you state that I've been doing this for 30 years, it's actually close, almost close to 40. Hmm. And the journey started back at an incident that many people, probably not even on their radar, but I've learned in life, just because something is not on our radar does not mean it, it did not take flight. And when Randy Randolph Evans was shot and killed in a housing development, and the police officer who shot him was a housing police officer, and he was found not guilty because he had a seizure. That seizure wasn't recognized by the epileptic board, but he still was able to be found not guilty because of that seizure. He took out his gun. A young Randy went to the police officer's car and simply asked him a question. Are you coming from my apartment in NYCHA? Officer took out his gun and shot him. And out of that came a movement that Reverend Herbert Daughtry and other African-American leaders put together, it was named Black United 
front. It was a unification of all of the various organizations. It was an idea that all of the black organizations, sort of pan-African organizations could come together under one front and organize. And that was a very complicated challenge. And I remember many of those discussions. But it got me off the track of going into computer technology, which <laughs> was uh, my desire. I was learning how to program through COBOL, Assembly, and some of the other mainframe languages. And Reverend Daughtry, G2A Uzi, who's no longer alive, and some of the other leaders, Sam Penn, who's no longer with us, they all came together and they uh, basically, one would say ask, but they told us we would go into law enforcement. And some of us went into the Department of Corrections, some of us went into courts, some went into the police department. And I was the one, one that went into the police department. And this came off of, you know, having a very terrible experience with police. So it was sort of a reflective moment, do we want to do this? But they felt we needed to go inside and fight for change on the outside. And that started a journey. We're talking about this was back in 1982, 83-ish. Mm -hmm. So when you do the math, it's a significant amount of time. And that's really what put you on the um, path of public service. Is yes, yes. Um, Prior to that, I was just probably the average kid trying to, you know, finish up school, get um, some form of knowledge that I could be gainfully employed coming out of South Jamaica, Queens, and Brownsville. You were just—it was just about really getting a job. You know, waking up every morning, just making the donuts. I'm not trying to make the donuts any more complicated than than they were. You know, time to make the donuts, and it just took an entirely different path. So then, did you have other mentors as you were on that path? Um, yes, some great uh, men and women that assisted along the way. Roger Abel, who was just really a legend. He was part of the New York City Police Department and he was just real, a real powerful influence. A sergeant named Lloyd Finley, he just died two days ago, I just got the mm -hmm. notification. He was a just a mentor, very level-headed person. Uh, ben Patton, as I look, listen to some of the names, Pat Williams and others who just were, they were pioneers. Many people don't know the impact of these men and women who were in law enforcement. And every day they put not only their occupation, but they put their physical lives on the line to fight for fairness and policing. That was, it was unheard of during those days. And, you know, I am amazed that I was able to do 22 years. You know, people used to say all the times, you're not gonna last a year in here, guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and part of me didn't expect to. I, and and you know when you don't expect, when the mission is not to last, then you're sort of extremely aggressive in your action, because mm. you know you're not going to be here anyway. <laughs> so every day was this aggressive critique and fight to change policing, because I did it that you, you're not staying anyway, so you might as well. This is not a marathon, it's a 50 yard dash, so you know, just give it your all. Hmm. 
You know, I was thinking thinking about you being the department and being a guy from South Jamaica, as I understand, Brownsville. Was that uh, unique in the department at that time, actually being a resident of the city and of Brooklyn? It wasn't unique, but at that time, I think about 38% of the police department lived outside the five boroughs. I don't know what the number is now, but there was always a problem of police officers coming from the neighboring counties. Because as a police officer, you could live in five of the neighboring counties, Suffolk, Putnam, Rockland, Orange, and, and Westchester. And the officers or the men who came into the department, for the most part, they knew nothing about the inner city. Right. And they did not know how to properly police in a multicultural, multi-ethnic environment. And there was a real us against them mindset. And they did not uh, perceive the people who lived in these communities as deserving of the kind of respect and compassion and professionalism. They policed communities based on the, the numerical minority who committed crimes instead of the numerical major, majority who wanted to provide for their families. And that was the mindset. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, that still happens within... Yes, it does. Not just the department, but I think governance. <clears throat> it does. It does. It really does. Mm. And I see it more and more that not only policing, education, the provider of services, people stigmatize groups based on their economics, where they live, the language they speak, or even the clothing they wear. And they give them the modified generic version of the services the city should provide. And those are the things that we try our best to dismantle. And even more than that, it's unfortunate, but many people who live in economically challenging communities, they begin to embody the spirit that they don't deserve better. I'll never forget one day we were doing a rally and a woman came here and she was going through some trauma and we stopped the rally for my attorney, my counsel here to help. And when she sat down and spoke with him, she says, you know, I understand that we have to live with the rats and roaches in our apartment, but, you know, the bed bugs we shouldn't have to deal with. And so the mere fact that you believe that it is okay to live with rats and roaches, and even when we walked through NYCHA to look at the NYCHA issue, we brought one of the gubernatorial candidates, Cynthia Nixon, to walk through NYCHA, and we also brought one of the presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders, to walk through NYCHA in Brownsville, they were apartments where people became almost immune to the substandard conditions they were living in. They didn't even see the hole in the wall anymore. They didn't see the uh, toilet from upstairs dripping down on them as they sat on their toilet in the mold, uh, the floors were degraded, the peeling paint, uh, they didn't even see it anymore because, you know, um, human beings have the amazing ability of adaptation. And that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. 
there's some things that we should be having, as Dr. King would say, we should have a maladjusted personality. We should never adjust to it. But people are adjusting every day to substandard conditions. And they adjust to the point, as I saw when I was out in Rockaway with Councilman Donovan visiting what was called the RAD projects, where private developers went in to rebuild public housing, and how people fought. They were so afraid of losing their housing and thought that they were not going to get what they wanted. When people, when they saw new floors going down and new walls and new stoves, they said, "What is this? You know, we don't want this because you know you're gonna you're gonna move us out." You know, and that is a dangerous place mm. to be mm. when substandard become your standard. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I'm gonna jump ahead since we're on limited time frame because <laughs> we could go. <laughs> I have a long discussion about everything you're talking about, and uh, I'm going to take it to a different place. We, uh, you, you live in and represent Brooklyn, the third largest city in the United States <laughs> now. Uh, it's full of wonderful, amazing young people, talented young people in our public schools. It's a home of great music, art, dance writing, film, tech, from diverse communities. Creativity and talent seems to ooze from the sidewalk, really. Do you think of yourself as creative? I believe we all have a level of creativity and we should tap into that and don't use or allow people to tell us what creativity is or isn't. You know, anyone that gets up in the morning and put a shirt and blouse or a tie or a pair of shoes together that takes a level of artistic expression to do so. And I like to believe that I use my creative energy in many ways. So yes, I do believe I have a artistic side of me. No one would buy that, <laughs> you know, but I don't think every artist looks for someone to purchase their work. They want yeah. to just express themselves. Yeah. Then uh, I'm wondering if uh, if there's any art form or particular artist that's influential to you now. Uh, several music. I enjoy music a lot. Uh, for some reason, Middle Eastern music speaks to me. And I like it more from a sound than a particular artist. And I enjoy the sounds of various Middle Eastern mm -hmm. music. And one of my favorite uh, sounds is the, uh, is the uh, Islamic call to prayer. Mm. Uh, I enjoy hearing that sound. It's a very meditative sound. And the various ways that the call to prayer is done. And so I don't identify so much with an artist as much as I identify with music. Because music like speak like we speak, is, is just vibrations that we gave meaning to. And so it doesn't really matter who is the artist. It is this, since our body is, is made up of vibration, we're constantly moving. And that vibration that we seek is similar to what we call music, or what we call sound, or what we call speak. 
the power of that vibration is what we really seek. And so I think that East, Eastern vibrations is something that I identify and I enjoy. Yeah, you know, I talk to uh, musicians on the podcast, and one of the questions I always ask a musician is uh, if they feel, if they're interested in the universal pulse, if, mm. they, if they're on it, if they feel it. And I think that's what you're... Uh, Without a doubt. <laughs> yes, yes. And sometimes people don't realize that why does one particular sound that use the same form of beats or notes, why does that sound resonate with all of us? Why do we all feel it? Because it may be closer to the universal pulse. And there is this thing about a universal pulse. And just because one does not exist, acknowledge the existence of something, it does not mean it does not exist. <laughs> yeah. We're going to start the Universal Pulse Party. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> There's something in that. <laughs> uh, reframe, reframe the narrative completely. Right, 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 <laughs> right. So your work and your leadership seems... Uh, to be a lot about showing up. You are a lot of places. <laughs> you show up a lot. You show up to witness and to advocate and to give voice to people who don't have voice. Um, how do you think about your public voice? Is, that, is your voice a synthesis uh, of many voices in the city, or is it, uh, is it your, a singular voice or, or something else? I think that's a great question. Gandhi says, because you are a minority of one does not mean that you know, you're standing for truth. And there sometimes I found myself being the minority of one, and there sometimes I felt myself speaking to a beat and a tone and a vibration that other people identified with. And I do not start a conversation of taking the Gallup poll of what is right to the masses. I started by saying what is right to me, what resonates to me as the right thing. And you are sometimes left alone in that, but many times you are left with the masses. I thought it was the right vibration to talk about what was happening in MDC when the men in the federal penitentiary was locked down four weeks without cold. I thought it was right when we talked about a young man being arrested and, the, and turned over to ICE in Fort Hamilton uh, Fort because he was delivering pizza. And I thought it was right throughout the years when I talked about Asian delivery boys who were assaulted as they delivered food to try to eke out a living. And there are many times that I would say something as we stood up when someone put out a communication saying, kill a Muslim day. We spoke out against that, just as I would stand with my Jewish brothers and sisters and talk about the over-proliferation of swastikas. And I would go into Williamsburg and talk to my Catholic brothers and sisters as the desecration of a statue. It is a consistency in my voice. Wrong is wrong. and. Sometimes someone that I stood next to to talk about the wrong to them, they felt bad about me talking about the wrong to someone else. 
but I'm going to remain consistent. You know, I'm, I'm an artist and musician, and a lot of my cohort, my people who identify in that way, think of themselves as outsiders. I think it's partly a conceit and partly a, a stance, but it's also a real thing. And uh, even though you're borough president and you've had this long career of service, I wonder if you ever feel like an outsider. Uh, <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. I do, uh, often. And I think that our occupation tend to define us. I'll never forget reading a book by Dr. Dispenser, You Are a Placebo. Really, I really enjoyed the book. Some books you read, they become game changers. And he talked about a man that was in the audience of one of his talks, and he asked the man, who are you? And the man stood up and said, I am a doctor, and he's talked about his professional achievement. He says, no, who are you? He thought a moment, he talked about the fact that he was a father, he had two children, and he was married, he was a husband. He says, no, but who are you? And he went through layers and layers of that until the man realized he did not know who he was. And oftentimes we define ourselves by our occupation, about our status, about everything but who we are. And my pursuit is to find out who I am and what's my purpose, because we're all here for a purpose. And you're not going to find that purpose and who you are if you stay within the safe boundaries of the definition that society has created. I'm looking under every stone, every rock, every place, and the truth resonates with us. If you open to feel that vibration, you will find the path that we're looking on. And oftentimes, you're an outsider while you try to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. What do you see as your role in community now, whatever community that is? I mean, you are kind of on this macro scale community. <laughs> That's a, those, those are good questions. Mm -hmm. I, I believe my role is a term that I use all the time, believe. Believe. People don't believe anymore. Mm. People, you know, they talk a good game and they act like they do, but do we really believe? Do we really believe we can do something about homelessness or do we go through the motion of just wanting to satisfy ourselves by saying we're fighting against homelessness? Do we believe that we could do something about unhealthy food in our schools or do we just like the sound bites saying we do? Do we believe that we could actually improve our environment when in fact we don't deal with the causes of environmental degrading of the environment? We don't believe. And I just find that we don't believe. A sound bite is not a belief. Being a member of something is not a belief. Mm -hmm satisfying your own ego by being able to list what you have done in a particular area is not belief. I would like to do all I can to become a real believer and help people to believe. That is what I believe is important. People must start believing again. Along those lines that, you know, we've talked about uh, your journey and it's a continuing journey. Yes, it is. Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, what do you find inspiring now? 
Uh, people, yeah. as you do your podcast, I'm sure you walked away with some of your talks and just felt empowered by the person you spoke with. And that is how it is with me. I keep a journal of the most interesting people I meet each day. And I am really excited about the cohorts of people who are going through this time on earth together. Hmm. There are some amazing people who are doing amazing times. This is, this is a great time to be alive. It is not as simple as the Industrial Revolution. It's not as, as simple as uh, coming out of the dark ages in Middle uh, in Eastern Europe. It's not as, as simple as the Protestant Revolution. Uh, it's just a time where I think we're going to go deeper than we've ever traveled before. And I think that you are a contributor, contributor to that, doing podcasts, I think TED Talks, YouTubes. I think now the information is so overwhelming. When I look at the fact that I was able to reverse my diabetes, it didn't come from the traditional methods. I went to the internet to find answers. Mm -hmm. And now this place where there's an accumulation of believers are now at a centralized spot out there in this place we call cyber. We're going to see believers start to come together and build these communities and these colonies. And through that, we're going to be better at what we do. And that excites me. That excites me that I can go out and find other believers and I, I believe our energy, our vibration will start to do and deal with some of the major issues that have held us back for so many years. It's about belief. Mm. Well, I think one last tag question on that. You know, when we think about the, uh, the cloud-based society that's forming, what's the role of place in that? Have, is that something that you th have thought about? Or? Yes. Clearly, the cloud-based society, the whole thought that we're going to start having communities that will exist in the clouds, we're going to redefine the terminologies that is associated with communities, and we're no longer going to be limited by, do I have enough to travel to visit my friend? We're not going to be limited by the walls and boundaries and the borders. We're going to be a community without borders. That's an amazing thought that we are now able to learn from each other to have these communities without borders. It's a great thought, it's a great feeling, and I think Brooklyn is an important part of that because in this borough, a number I throw around all the time, 47% of the borough speaks a language other than English at home. The relationships we can develop here, mm -hmm. we, it will allow us to build communities without borders right here in the borough of Brooklyn, and it will cascade throughout the entire globe. I, I agree with you. I think, <laughs> I think Brooklyn is the great shining uh, future. It, it so true. The way goes Brooklyn, I say, goes New York. 
The way goes New York goes America. The way goes America goes the globe. It all starts here. Here, here. In Brooklyn. Here, here. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for this time. and uh, Thank you very much. Hanging out for half an hour to talk about these great ideas. And uh, I think we'll leave it at that. We covered a lot. Yes. And we look forward to speaking again. Okay. Thank great. you. Thank you. And that's all for today's Harvey at the Undisclosed Location. Recorded today at Brooklyn's Borough Hall with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, and I've got some great guests lined up, so stay tuned for more Harvey at the Undisclosed Location.